The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. All right, here's a question for you. What does it look like to look like Jesus? What does it look like to look like Jesus? I acknowledge that's sort of a funny way to ask that question. But what does it look like to look like Jesus? I spent some time this week, I shared last Sunday, that I had the opportunity to spend some time this week with a bunch of middle school and high school students in Charleston. It was an adventure getting to tell the, I'm I'm completely like zapped drive, trying, you know, teaching and, and interacting with the students from this past week. And one of the things that we were, we were given as part of our instruction, the, the campus pastors in, in teaching these students, was to, was to wrestle through with these students the topic of identity. Who are we? What are we? And so we took a look at a bunch of different psalms, and the things that I sort of tried to continually turn ourselves back to is, is we are Jesus' people. And more than that, we are a people who have been given the riches and the blessings of Christ, and we've been given the opportunity to even bear out the life of Christ, to live like Jesus. One helpful summary of this idea comes from a guy named Brian Rosner. He's an, he's an Australian scholar, but he wrote a book recently where he said that the Christian life, and I love this, is living the life story of Jesus. The Christian life is living the life story of Jesus. As followers of Christ, we've been united to Jesus. We've received all of the benefits and blessings of being united to Jesus. But we're also called to pattern our very lives after Jesus' life. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to look like Jesus? For some of us, our mind goes to things like holiness, the fruit of the Spirit. We think of Jesus' immense patience with his disciples. Maybe others of us think of Jesus' righteous anger when he goes into the temple and flips tables. Maybe that speaks to different tendencies some of us have, some of you table flippers. By the way, seeing Brett's mustache made me think, I'm wearing a mustache, and the reason is a bunch, of the, a bunch of the students and counselors invited me to, to shave my mustache or, you know, shave my beard and have a mustache with the rest of the guys this week. So I feel like in a public place, I need to acknowledge that this wasn't my idea. <laughs> so just feel like I need to say that. So when we think about the life of Christ, we think about holiness, the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe we think about acts of mercy or extending forgiveness. Maybe we think about taking up our crosses and following Jesus through suffering, through affliction, through hardship. Embracing these things with humility as a gift from the Lord. But what else might that entail? Living a life like Jesus' life. Signs and wonders? Miracles? Walking on water? I mean, some of those things have been the case for Christians in the past, and they were most certainly things for the apostles in these scriptures. But what else might this entail? Looking like Jesus. What about doing good and being punished for it? What about miraculous acts of mercies that result in the authorities coming down in opposition against you? What about the nations raging against the Lord, his anointed, and his people? It's really noteworthy about how in the book of Acts, you see Jesus' life almost literally played out again in the life of the apostles and the early church. I mean, when the scriptures talk about the church being Christ's body, in the book of Acts, it is almost literal. 
Luke presents the the early church and the apostles again and again as almost reliving the life story of Jesus. The apostles find themselves in these really, if, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they find themselves in these really, really similar scenarios. And our passage today is one such similar scenario with a lot of the same things being accused, a lot of the same things being said, and even some of the exact same characters reappearing. Now in Acts chapter 1, we see Christ ascending to the right hand of God. We sang about that just a moment ago, that Christ is the conqueror, and that as a man, as our brother, he has ascended into the heavenly places, and he rules over all things. Acts chapter 1, Christ ascends, and then he sends, he promises the coming of his spirit and says that with the coming of the spirit, my people are going to be sent to the nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then in Acts chapter 2, we see that promise fulfilled, the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit does indeed fall on the church and does indeed commission them out. Again, this is much like Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus begins his ministry with the Spirit descending on him and then being sent, commissioned by the Spirit. We see that pattern sort of reestablished already in Acts chapter 2. The second half of Acts 2, Peter delivers a sermon, just, just thunders, delivers a sermon saying that what you see the Spirit doing, it, it's, all, it, it's all evidence and it's, it's affirmation that Christ did indeed raise from the dead and that Christ is indeed at the Father's right hand. Then in Acts chapter 3, that's where the action really gets started. We have the first healing in the book of Acts, where Peter and John are making their way past the temple gate, and they pass this man who has, who has been lame for 40 plus years, and he says, do you have any silver or gold? And Peter and, John, Peter and John say, we don't have any silver and gold, but what we do have, we give to you. Walk in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the man like walks, and he, and he leaps, and he heel clicks, like chim, chimney, chim, chim, churu style. That's exactly what I picture. And then, on the heels of that miraculous event, the, 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 the masses sort of rush to Peter and John, and Peter once again explains that what you're seeing happening, it's a reaffirmation that Jesus is indeed resurrected and that Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand. And today, we have the fallout of the events of Acts chapter 3, where the opposition from the authorities to the disciples' action begins to surface. And I think it's instructive for us. Let's look at Acts 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, that is Peter and John speaking to the masses, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Jesus has been raised from the dead, we're told in Peter's sermon. We're told again in the New Testament over and over again that all authority and all power is given to Jesus. And like Mikey said last week, the news of Jesus' resurrection and ascent is like, is like a hurricane. You just don't sit passively to that kind of news. It demands a response. And so they're teaching about the resurrection. They're saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one in whom all of Israel's hopes find their completion. And then it says, that the religious leaders are really, really annoyed. And it mentions specifically the Sadducees, who are especially peeved by them teaching the resurrection because we know from the gospel accounts that the Sadducees deny any notion of resurrection. 
The Sadducees reject any kind of resurrection at all. The resurrection at the end of history, which was the Jewish hope, they reject it. And so they especially reject the fact that Jesus could be resurrected right in the middle of history. And I love that it says that they're greatly annoyed. I was really curious about what this word means. And it means annoyed. They're just, they're annoyed. They're exasperated at the fact that these guys are preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's like, you got to think that these guys thought that they were done with this. We thought that we snuffed him out. We thought that we addressed the Jesus problem. We thought, surely, we thought our actions and conspiring against him and putting him to death, surely that would stop this movement. Little do they know that it is just getting started. This week, um, well, I guess two weeks ago, our air conditioning went out. Anybody ever had that happen before? Just lose your AC? Greatly annoyed is a great description for when your AC goes out. Especially when it goes out and then you... You, you think that you have a solution and you get it fixed and you think that the, you think it's there, you think that chapter is over and then 48 hours later, it goes out again, greatly annoyed that this continues to be an issue, right? So we, we figured out a hack, we're making it work, we're going to get it replaced sometime within the next few weeks. But as I was thinking about the, the Sadducees being greatly annoyed, I loved how it's almost like a, it's like a, it's like an inconvenience that continues to surface for them, like your AC going out. They're greatly annoyed. They're just frustrated that this continues to be an issue, that Jesus continues to be preached. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. They get the band back together. With Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in, uh, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So they've arrested Peter and John. They put them in jail. They, they leave them in jail overnight. They get all of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, everybody, they, they, the, the whole high priestly family, they get everybody back together. They put Peter and John in the middle, and they say, all right, Peter and John, we need to know. By what power or by what name did you do this miracle? And this is where we begin to notice the similarities to Jesus' story. The same characters that did the same things to Jesus are present here. Annas, the high priest. Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin. And it's interesting that they, they confront Peter and John with the same questions that they confront Jesus with. They see his miraculous work and they say, by what power and by what name do you do these things? Now, obviously, something miraculous has taken place. There's no denying the fact that this man had indeed been healed. This man had been lame his entire life, and yet he was walking. He was healed. Obviously, there is some kind of power at play here. And they confront them. They say, in whose name and whose power are you doing this miraculous thing? You know, maybe they're hoping that the disciples will, will feel the heat, and they'll, they'll say, in God's name. We're doing it in, in, in God's name, and they'll, they'll kind of keep it at that. We're doing it in God's name and maybe back down a little bit from this, these efforts at intimidating them. Or maybe there's even some of them hoping that they'll say we're doing it in the name of demons because at least that is easy to clean up. That makes really clear that you are evil. The absolute last thing they want to hear these guys say is that they are doing this in the name of Jesus. We just dealt with him. His story should be over. That chapter should be finished. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised. Jesus told his disciples that you're going to be drugged before authorities 
on behalf of of my name, and I'm going to fill you with my spirit, and I'm going to enable you to stand boldly before them. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I love that. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 103 Bethlehem Drive, 29637, that Jesus, that particular Jesus, that Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He says, this good deed, you have an issue with this good, good deed? The good deed isn't the problem. The problem, no, of course not, is not the good deed. The issue is who healed this man. The one by by whose power and and, and in whose name this good deed was performed. He says, you really want to know? I'll tell you. Jesus. The one you killed and the one God raised from the dead. By him, his power, this man is well. And you just got to imagine the sinking feeling in the pit of the stomach of the religious leaders at this news, at this moment. They think this is going to be a huge, huge mess. Peter says, in Jesus' name, because Jesus isn't dead. Yes, you killed him. You crucified him, but he is alive. He is active. His heart beats. His hand is present tense, ruling the nations. He is God. He is not just a prophet. He is the one who grants salvation. In his name, this man is healed. This is an important passage for us, by the way, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. This is an important passage because even in Acts, what we see here is very strong, kind of clear statements that Jesus is the one through whom all people are saved. And at this point, he's not just thinking about the healing of this particular man. He's thinking about Jesus as the Savior of all nations, that Jesus is the one through whom we are saved. In other words, we only access God through Jesus. Uh, there's, there's a pastor in recent years who, who has really helpfully kind of identified that there's a, there's a scandalous inclusivity and a scandalous exclusivity to Jesus. It says is that the scandalous inclusivity is that the gospel is wide open for any and all who would believe. It's like who, whoever you find most despicable, Jesus invites them to. That's, that's the gospel. There's a scandalous inclusivity. All people are welcome to Christ. But the scandalous exclusivity is it's only Christ. Only Christ saves. There are not multiple pathways to access God. There's not multiple ways that we can go about kind of uh, achieving salvation or finding relief from our sins. The scriptures say no. It is exclusively through the man Jesus who dies on behalf of the sins of the world. It is exclusively Christ. And here Peter tells them that Jesus is like a stone that was rejected by builders but has become a cornerstone. Now, if you've ever gone over to the lumber section at Lowe's and you're like, let's say you're building 
I don't know, a tree house, or I don't know why that's the first thing that came to you're, you're, you're framing out a house or something like that. You're, you're working on a project with a house, and you go to the lumber section. Whenever you're picking out two-by-fours, one of the most important things to do is to make sure you pull out the two-by-four and to look down it to make sure that thing isn't warped to high heaven, you know, shaped like an S, right? And then when you, when you look down and you see that those particular pieces of wood are all warped and wonky and out of shape, you cast them aside. You don't, you don't use those pieces of wood because it's not good for building a strong, secure, square building, Right? In the same way in the ancient world, when they would build these structures, they would, they would kind of get stones and sort of evaluate them to see if these stones were, you know, were adequate for building these facilities. And if they weren't, if they were all warped to high heaven, they would toss them aside, right? And what Peter says is that the, the, great, the great temple that God is building of all people from all nations, the great, the great work of salvation in history is like a temple. You looked at Jesus and you cast him aside as one who's worthless, But what God has done is he has used Jesus as the cornerstone, the very foundation of the work that he is doing in the world. Jesus is the cornerstone, the one on whom all things are built. The one that you rejected as unfit as the Messiah, God has made him the linchpin, the foundation of the whole structure. So how's this going to go, we think? (laughs) How is Peter's response? It's going to go over just fine, I'm sure, swimmingly, right? I mean, goodness, Peter just smoked these guys, and he didn't double down. He, like, quintupled down at this point. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. One commentator said that the Spirit of Christ is stubbornly active in his disciples. Isn't that a great way to say that? The Spirit of Christ is stubbornly active in his disciples. I mean, think about this. I mean, weeks ago, Peter, this Peter, was denying Jesus to a servant girl weeks ago. And today he stands and speaks with a kind of clarity and boldness that comes from another world. It says that they recognize that Peter is just a layperson, and he's speaking with boldness and authority. And it says that Jesus' acts here remind the leaders of somebody. Peter's acts here remind the leaders of somebody. And who is it? Jesus. They see that these guys had been with Jesus. Apparently, these guys had learned a thing or two about tangoing with these religious leaders and about how to understand the Scriptures, about who Christ was and what the Scriptures said about him. They saw a a profound similarity between Peter and John and Christ. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. Just think about how almost just impotent and kind of pathetic this scene is here. When they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They said, that's a good idea. Let's warn them not to talk about this anymore. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they see that this guy is obviously fixed. This man has obviously been healed. And they see that Peter and John are not going to back down. And so what we'll tell them is, all right, no more. 
No more talking about Jesus. We're going to take it easy with you guys this time. Don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. How's that going to go? Verse 19. But Peter and John answer them, thundering once again, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John say, look, God has done this in Jesus. We, have, we, we are witnesses in the most literal sense. We have seen it. We have touched it. We have been there. Jesus is resurrected, and so we are constrained to do this. He commanded us to tell this message, so you tell us what you think we ought to do. Verse 21. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And once again, we're reminded of the Lord Jesus here. Finding no way to punish them because the people are going nuts in their favor. The people love it. And so out of fear for what the people might do if they further punish Peter and John, they let him go. And once again, we see echoes of Jesus. So what do we do with this, this incredible story? I mean, this is just the first of, gosh, innumerable encounters we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts, where the early church is emboldened by the Spirit to testify about Jesus, whatever the cost. And it's amazing how similar it plays out to the life of Jesus, that the, to be a Christian is to live the life story of Jesus. And we see that play out again and again in the life of the apostles, and it's true for us. If Christ was opposed and was opposed even for doing good deeds, Opposed unjustly, opposed without, without any kind of legitimate basis. I mean, surely we can expect the same things to happen to us. And so I think Peter and John's response here is instructive for us should we find ourselves in a similar situation. And as I'm reading this, my heart and mind can't help but think about the fact that it's Pride Month. And Christians are necessarily excluded from this celebration because there are things that we just cannot celebrate and many of us are in situations with work, with our family, or otherwise that make our faithfulness to Jesus in those settings challenging. In fact, I know for a fact that there are folks in our body who are confronted with really difficult choices as it relates to these issues. And frankly, it's really easy. I was thinking about it this week. It is really easy for me to be a Christian in ways that it's not for many of y'all. I mean, in a lot of ways, like, it, it is easy for me to spend my time studying the scriptures and talking about fidelity to Jesus because I am not in the same situations that many of you find yourselves in where you are being challenged by ideas and forces that are at odds with the scriptures. You wrestle with things that I have never been confronted with. My, my livelihood has never been at stake for my stance on Pride Month. And I know that that is the case for some of you. Many of you, lots of you, are examples of faithfulness to me and teach me and help me to stand strong in my faith with those issues. But I think Peter actually doesn't just give us an example in these scriptures for situations like that. Peter actually writes to the church and helps the church to apply this issue, to, to apply what he did here. He writes to the church clearly and says, this is how you ought to live in situations where you are exiled and in situations where you are opposed for your faithfulness to Christ. 
just a few decades after these events, these events recorded here, Peter writes a letter to churches in modern-day Turkey that almost reads like an extended reflection on the story that we just read. All right, so flip to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 1. Peter writing to these early Christians. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And notice this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying, uh, laying a Zion. Uh, I'm sorry, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stumble, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter recognizes here is that, like Christ, we can be a stumbling block. And that to to be found in Christ, to be found in the cornerstone, is to necessarily find ourselves being opposed by the world. And he says, but we, we, we shouldn't be discouraged by this. Instead, we should see this as evidence that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his people, and that we've been called so that we could proclaim his excellencies. And then in verses 11 and 12, he says, as sojourners and exiles, as misfits, as people who don't belong, you're not citizens of, of the earthly realm, abstain from the passions of flesh, live holy, holy lives. And then in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Do good deeds. Live well. Live above reproach. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, live in such a way that when there's accusations made against you, it just doesn't stick. Let's look at a few verses from chapter 4. Start in verse 12 of 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you were blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How are we to respond if we find ourselves in this situation? We respond like Jesus, like Peter, like John filled with Jesus' spirit. There's four things. The first thing is this. Be bold. Be bold. We're told that the religious leaders are shocked to see Peter's boldness. And I think this is an example for us. Be bold. He's not saying be brazen. He's not saying be brash. He's not saying be arrogant. There's a kind of stick it to the man that seeks out opportunities to make a stink in Jesus' name. And that is not what's in view here. Peter himself recognizes the difference between legitimate opposition for being faithful to Christ and just bringing it on yourself by being a tool. He recognizes that distinction. But what we see modeled here is a kind of boldness that's an unwillingness to shrink from convictions. That's the kind of boldness that I think Peter models and the kind of boldness that we're called to in scriptures. A boldness that doesn't relish or wear the opposition as a badge, but a kind of boldness that stands by convictions with clarity when challenged. We're called to be bold. Be boldly committed to Jesus. But there's a second thing. This is, this is no small piece of this. Second thing. Build up a portfolio of good works. Build up a portfolio of good works. What's really striking is the fact that they just couldn't, they just couldn't quite have anything land on Peter and John because they saw that the man had been healed. They, the, 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 the good deed of doing this miraculous work had legitimized these guys. And they, they, they just couldn't make anything stick because of these good works. I think this is to be so for us. It's important for us to be really, 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 really good employees. To arrive at work early and to stay late if we need to. To work really hard, to be a really good friend, to be a really reliable employee, to be a really good family member. To produce good work, to reject grumbling, to be generous, to be hospitable, to be friendly, to remember our coworkers' names and their birthdays and their spouse's name and their kids' names. Like Peter says, let the Gentiles glorify God on the day of visitation on account of us. We're to build up a portfolio of good works. The third thing is this. Fear God and not man. In verse 19, Peter, Peter challenges them and says, like, do, do, should we do what's right in your eyes or God's eyes? Like, you let us know. Similarly, we are called to a kind of fear of God that constrains us. I do not like conflict. I have discovered that about myself since um, entering into the pastoral ministry. I don't like conflict, and I hate not being liked. It is, it is my core sin issue, period. I need to be liked. And I do not like the fact that the scriptures make it abundantly clear that if, if that is you, if you struggle with fear of man, it is a snare and it will ruin you. The scriptures call us to, to fear God above and beyond any man. To, to fear God and to obey God and to live in line 
with what God has called us to do and to be. I don't like making people uncomfortable, and God has exposed this fear of man in my heart. And yet, the scriptures command us. They force us to ask, who would we rather fear? Who makes more sense to fear? And whose eyes should we do what's right? We should do what's right in the Lord's eyes, full stop. And then finally, the fourth thing that I think the scriptures hold out for us here is that we should glorify God for the opportunity to suffer like Christ. That should suffering and opposition come, should, God forbid, we have to endure hardships for Christ's name, Peter instructs us to do it with gratitude, that we get to live the life story of Jesus. He doesn't tell us to seek it out. He doesn't tell us to seek it out and to brand it and to wear it like a badge. But he says, should this be given to you, this particular cross, bear it with the gratitude that you can suffer like and for the Lord Jesus. The calling on each of us is to live the life story of Jesus. And it includes all of those things we mentioned at the beginning. Holiness, flipping tables on occasion, the fruit of the Spirit, acts of mercy, forgiveness. But it might also include this. Being imposed and being called to a kind of bold faithfulness that that entrusts our fate to God no matter the result, no matter the outcome. And the encouragement for us is that we live the life story of Jesus, which means his death on our behalf is our death, and his resurrection is our resurrection. And so we have a hope that extends deeper and far beyond the darkest and strongest opposition, whatever it might be, and we can hope in Christ forever because Christ's destiny is our destiny. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you because you first came to us. Because you bore our sin and you bore our death and our our sickness and our sorrow so that we could have life and that we could have life abundantly in you. And Lord Jesus, we also acknowledge those places where the scriptures call us to, to take up our cross and to offer up our very lives for your name's sake. And I pray, Jesus, that like Peter and John, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and be given a kind of strength and, and boldness and perseverance should you call us into such a life. And I pray for our church family, many of whom are confronted with, with difficult situations where there might be some cost to faithfulness to Christ. And I pray that like these folks who give us this example in the scripture and, and like you yourself did, Lord Jesus, I pray that you give them boldness. Lord Jesus, we pray for our church. We pray that you would knit us together. We pray that you would deepen our love for you and your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in our midst, and we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.